Welcome back to the Liberty on Fire podcast. I'm your host, Libertarian Tony. Well, if this is your first time listening to this show, well, thank you very much. And if you are a repeat listener, well, then I also want to say thank you for coming back and listening to each and every show. Please don't forget to visit my website when you get a chance, libertyonfire.org, where you can get the podcast directly over the internet and links to support pages for the show to help keep the lights on and for some of the products that I'm going to recommend who I happen to be an affiliate marketer for. So if you want to support the show and you're interested in some of the products that I'm helping to promote, then go to my website and either make a donation on the Patreon page, which of course will also be in the show notes, or check out some of the products I'm advertising and see what you think. But remember to click on it through my link at my website or through the show notes. If you are a social media person, well then you can also check me out on Twitter at LOF Podcast. So that's L-O-F Podcast. And please don't forget to give me a five-star review on Apple Podcast or whatever medium you're using to download and listen to the podcast. I really appreciate it. Hey, Joey, welcome back to the Liberty on Fire podcast. How are you doing? Um, I'm just in lockdown like the rest of us, but uh, doing okay over here in Florida. So you must do all your own shopping and everything. And how often do you have to go out and buy food and that kind of stuff? Oh, gosh. It's, it's annoying because... When it first, like the when everyone panicked and, and hit the food stores really hard and there was nothing left, you know, I was never freaking out about the whole thing. So I just kind of casually went in to buy some groceries and nothing was there. So I had to kind of wait for a little bit. Now they're, they're really doing a good job stocking everything. And um, the only issues for me, which, but I think this is a good idea, but they only allow me to buy like two meat products from the, from the meat section. I can't have more than that. So everything's there, but it makes me have to go to the store you know, um, every couple of days. Mm, Yeah. I, so what we're doing is that I, I pretty much go to the store, I I think once a day or every other day. And we have elected in the family that I am the guy, I am the one who goes to the store. So this Mm -hmm. way we're not all going and I guess potentially getting exposed. Mm -hmm. So, um, it's probably safer that way, especially it's a bad idea to bring the kids, I think, to a store because they have like little magnets in their fingers. And it's like everything in, in the mm-hmm. entire store is like all metal and it's, and it's all ferromagnetic type stuff. So yeah. their fingers are attracted to everything. And they, I don't know, maybe they see, maybe they're like partially blind and they're just seeing by <laughs> touching things like Braille, you know, because uh-huh. they touch everything. So yeah, it's good keeping them out of the stores, I think. And I, I mean, I take basic precautions when I go. I don't even wear a mask. So my, my wife is a little more serious about it than I am. Uh, I don't wear a mask, but the stores I go to, they have the hand sanitizer right there before you come in. So I get all lubed up on my hands before I go in and I get one of those wipes and I put it on the cart and I wipe down the cart that I'm going to hold while I'm in the store. And if, you know, I, I don't know, to me, I, I feel pretty safe that I'm, that I'm doing the right thing. Um, I, and again, I'm just, I, maybe I should be more worried. I'm just, I'm just not. And I think when I go through some of the, I guess the numbers, maybe that'll tell some of the listeners why. Are you worried about it? Uh, people are going to think I'm just copying you because I, I, that's the same way. I, I'm just not, 
I've, I don't know. I'm not, I have not freaked out about this really much. And the death numbers are scary, but I realize, you know, most of the time it's, it's some underlying issue that people have already had, or they're really old. So for me personally, um, you know, I'm not afraid. I don't want to get anybody in my family sick, but, um, there's not even anybody that many people in Florida, you know, that, that even have it. I mean, compared to just like normal flu, maybe that's because it, we have social distanced now, but I don't know. It's all a little crazy to me that we're, people are losing businesses now because of it. But it's funny. If you go to the store every day, you see the same progression, right? That I have, like when it first started, there was just people were buying a bunch. Then the next day you have like, um, one or two masks. And I look at that and I was like, man, that's crazy. And now the next day there's like way more masks. And then the next day I go to the store, everyone in line is six feet apart from me. So it's like a new, er, things are going so, uh, crazy fast with like how people react each and every day. It's, it's, you can see a big difference when you go to the store and now like tons of people are wearing masks. Um, people don't even, they definitely don't want to walk closely next to you. Um, yeah, it's, 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 a f it's interesting to see how fast everything one day at a time changes. I just actually, I had a doctor appointment today and it was virtual. So that was interesting. And I also took my dog to the vet, but they had to take him out of the car and leave me in the car. So it's, everything's going, um, you know, people are really, really taking it seriously. Yeah. I, I guess I don't have a problem with people like individual people taking it more seriously than others because yeah, it's, mm -hmm. it's your own choice to do that. I, I have a problem with the government forcing you to take it as seriously because the government doesn't really know, right? They, they are kind of making it up as they go. And it, it was clear the way, I guess, our government and other governments around the world were handling it. They were all handling it kind of differently in the beginning. And the media was handling it differently than what the governments were saying. And I mean, if you look, for example, people in the administration were saying it wasn't that big of a deal. And then when it started to look worse, Trump banned you know the, the flights from China. And then the media came down hard on him about it. Like, oh, you're so racist. And why are you doing this? It's not a big deal. And then after a couple more weeks... Um, it kind of flipped. Then Trump was started saying it was like not as a big of a deal if you follow the rules and you're, you're distance properly. And then the media were like, no, it's horrible. We're all going to die. And so it, it, it's, yeah, I don't, nobody has perfect information in this scenario, right? Nobody has all the information they need to make all the right decisions. And to assume that the government has all the information is a huge erroneous assumption in my opinion because they never have all the information right because they don't know they're a bunch of idiots you know they have some experts that are telling them things but all the experts are telling them you know their opinions of, of what is going on and you can guarantee the government always making the wrong decision first right you can always guarantee they're going to mm -hmm. do something wrong and probably on a large level before they hopefully end up doing the right thing. Anyway, that's, that's how I kind of feel about that part of it. Yeah, I know people like me and you, we've always been critical of, of the government and, and thinking that they're never really efficient at any of this kind of stuff ever throughout history. And you know, whether we liked or disliked Trump, um, him be 
being the president really doesn't change our opinion of how efficient the government is at things. But you know what's funny? You mentioned the media and, and the, what they say. I actually need – maybe I'm missing something here. But I remember Trump thought or said to us that he doesn't think this would be that big of a deal, right, in like January or something. And then – so he was wrong because it's a bigger deal, right? Um, so the media on the left, the big thing that they keep doing it for the last like month and a half now, they'll go on like people like Don Lemon will tell his audience like Trump in January said that this wasn't going to be that big of a deal. And then in February, he said, you know, it's like what what exactly was going to happen to this whole pandemic if Trump in January said, hey, this is going to be pretty bad. Were, were a thousand million lives going to be saved? No matter what Trump said, they were going to spin it opposite, right? So if Trump came down in January and was like, hey, this is a big deal. we got to shut down everything. Everybody's got to um, stay home and social distance, and we got to ban flights. They would have all said he was crazy, and they would have said, oh, he's unfit to be in office, and look at what he's doing. He's just being racist towards China. They would have made up a whole bunch of crap, right? So, And if he took the complete opposite view— then they would have been like, no, this is horrible. We're all going to die. I mean, so, yeah, I, no matter what he says, they're going to hit him for it, whether it's on the spot or a week later or a month later. They're going to go back and pretend as if Trump should have had perfect information when he was making decisions when he didn't, right? So, but no politician has perfect information. I mean, and, and that's, I mean, that's true of even all the medical professionals, right? They don't have perfect information. They have scientific guesses let's say right when they're making decisions even on simple stuff when you go to your doctor with chest pain well they don't really know where it's coming from so they order some tests right they do an exam on you they order an ekg they'll get a chest x-ray they'll get an echocardiogram uh, order some blood tests and they try to figure out if is it really coming from the heart or not and then if they still can't tell well, you know, there's a lot of patients that they really can't tell on because maybe your, your cardiac enzymes aren't elevated and it kind of looks like real chest pain, but it's not presenting like it. But, it, you know, they're all factors that come into play uh, in, in science where science is more of an art and a kind of high percentage guessing game than it is uh, cut and dry. Yeah, in Florida, where I live right now, the area that I'm in anyway, um, in, in the biggest hospital near me, which is going to be a lot of people going to the hospital, there's only four cases of coronavirus. And, uh, so far that was, I heard that was, um, over the weekend, I think it was. So, um, that particularly doesn't, it, that, I don't know if I'm being naive, but I just, I'm not scared by, um, this, you know, my big area only having four cases in that major hospital. And, um, Nobody that I think we know or I know has has been affected. It, it just seems like, I don't know, there's not many deaths in my area too. I can't tell if this is overblown reaction or not, but you know more about the numbers. So I was wondering what, what your opinion on it was. If I should be worried about the carnage of the coronavirus or, um, you know, what you think. Okay, so before I tell you, uh, kind of go through some of the numbers here, just my quick two cents on my local situation. Uh, California doesn't have, overall, given our size of our population, but we don't have that many cases and that many deaths, right? So Florida is closing in, I think, on 15,000 cases. 
California is closing in on 16,000. You guys are closing in on 300 deaths, and we're closing in on 400 deaths, okay? The biggest number of cases and deaths are in New York. Okay, so aside from that, my little rinky-dink hospital, which is an hour away from San Francisco, um, we are, I would say, overprepared. Okay, we basically canceled all elective surgeries. Mm -hmm. So you're only going to get an emergency surgery. Uh, you come into the ED with an appendicitis or something, and that's got to come out. Well, then you have surgeons on call for that. But we have docs just basically sitting around doing nothing. Chronic hip pain, you need a hip replacement or a shoulder uh, replacement, or you have like horrible back pain and you need your back surgery. We're not doing any of those cases right now. They have converted almost the entire hospital to basically like emergency cases, and then they're saving most of the hospital for coronavirus patients, which I think are never going to come. We ended up, I think we've had five total corona cases, right? We had one guy, uh, I think, transferred from the, one of the cruise ships that came into California. We had, and, and then I think we've had four other cases, and I think two were sent home already. One is still in hospital and is improving or something like that. So, yeah, we, I think certainly my little area has gone overboard, and maybe we'll get a transfer, a, a, a large bolus of cases from other parts of California. I don't know, but it, it seems like we are really well prepared for it. Uh, and, and if I'm a small little hospital that's really well prepared, I can imagine maybe some of the bigger hospitals are, they can handle so many more patients and they're probably just as well prepared, if not better. Anyway, that's, a, I, that's an assumption of mine that bigger hospitals will be better prepared. But yeah, I, I think when I look at this whole virus thing and I look at the numbers, Yes, it's obviously bad that people are dying from the virus, right? That's always tragic. Uh, nobody likes to see that. However, I still firmly believe that the death rate is significantly inflated given the way that the government and some of the media people and, the do and some doctors in the media are talking about it. So the best way to look at this is you got to like use an example. And I want to compare it to influenza, even though people in the media are saying, oh, you can't compare it to the flu. Well, if the people in the media say you can't do it, well, then you probably should do it, right? Because they're usually wrong about everything. Mm -hmm. All right. So not everyone who's diagnosed with influenza actually is tested for it, right? They, they are mm -hmm. clinically diagnosed based on symptoms. So if you have a fever and body aches and you don't feel like getting out of bed, you call your doctor and, you know, they says, oh, yeah, you have the flu, just stay home. But they didn't actually get a blood test or a swab or anything to tell them that they had the flu, right? And so over a number of years, the medical, profession, the medical professionals, they just have an estimated number of uh, people that just assume have the flu every year, right, without being actually tested for it. All right, so that, that's what you call kind of like a guesstimation or, you know, a guesstimation plus a clinical diagnosis. It doesn't 100% mean you have the flu, Right? There are other viruses that are similar to the flu um, that you could have, but you're, you're basically diagnosed with the flu anyway, because that's probably the most common during that certain type of, uh, you know, the flu season, right? Let's say between the fall and winter months. So all those numbers get added up into this large assumption of people that come down with the flu every year. Okay, so again, it's a big guesstimation. So let's say, for example, 
we guesstimate that 50 million people contract the flu every year and 50,000 people die of the flu every year. That's a death rate of 0.1%. Now, these numbers aren't actual or, or true, but you get the idea. I'm just trying to use the numbers as an example, right? Okay. Anyway, again, th there's an assumption that you have the flu based on your, Simpson, or on your symptoms. And if you're pretty sick and you're hospitalized and you end up dying of the flu, well then, yeah, those people always get tested, right? Because they're in the hospital at that point. So if you're sick, sick enough to die of the flu, that gets counted. And those true numbers, right, those positive test case numbers of, of the flu just get added into the big guesstimation number. And that's a huge denominator because so many millions are just guesstimated to have the flu every year, right? So you have, you have this assumed large number of people who contract the virus and a much smaller amount of people that actually die from the virus or are proven to have the virus and then get tested for it and then they die from it. So if you remember the example, I said 50 million get the flu, 50,000 die for a death rate of 0.1%. And now you have to contrast that with coronavirus, right? This new coronavirus. Well, the, the media, government, and some of your so-called medical professionals out there are, are using the actual number of test positive cases for coronavirus, right? Mm -hmm. they're, they're not using an assumed number. They're not using a guesstimation. So you have a certain number of people who test positive and a certain number of people who actually die of coronavirus and... Let's use an example, 100,000 people test positive and 30,000 people die. Well, that gives you a death rate of 3%. However, they're, it's, they're completely different ways of measuring it compared to the flu, right? They're not counting the tons of people who are out there who probably have coronavirus and are asymptomatic or have mild symptoms and that never get tested, right? Mm -hmm. So they aren't using the clinical diagnosis number that they use for the flu. They're using a test positive number. And the, mm. num the number has actually got to be much, much higher. So let's pretend that number is like a million. So let's say a million people have the coronavirus, right? You can, whatever, if they're tested or if it's a guesstimation of a million people and you have that same number of 30,000 people that die, well, then if you do the math, death rate is now 0.3%. I mean, that's a huge difference, right? So, yeah, you can't, you can't use the death rate that you're seeing in the news of this test positive group um, comparing those to the deaths and then looking at the flu where you have this guesstimated huge number comparing it to the number of people who die. So, uh, anyway, it seems to me that people are sensationalizing the death rate because they're not comparing it accurately to other diseases such as the flu, and some are disingenuously or, or unknowingly and ignorantly doing this and have been saying it's a very deadly disease when it might not be any more deadly than the flu itself. We, we have never seen a government shutdown of the economy due to this, the, the regular influenza. So yeah, I think mm. many people are using the wrong numbers either because they don't know any better or maybe on purpose because we, we have a significant government overreaction to this pandemic now. I, I like your tirade, Tony. It was it was definitely interesting. I I thought that um, the death rate for the for this coronavirus was always something that you can't really look at because we don't know how many people out there actually have it. And I, I was aware that um, 
that the people they count as do having it is something that is not guesswork. It's something that they, they have actually tested and known. But what about all the people who they haven't tested who actually have it? You know, um, so uh, the, the death rate number was always a little skewed to me. But what, I, what was interesting there, which was a good listen, was your, your uh, talk about the flu. Because I didn't know that's how they count flus. And it makes sense for me now. Like you can call or something and you're, you're giving your symptoms. And then they're like, oh, yeah, it's probably the flu. You know, stay home. And I didn't know that actually becomes a number. Uh, if if that's what you're saying, like that, so that becomes part of the approximation every year, uh, and that's the way they sort of do it. And so you're saying that the number of people who actually have the flu could be smaller than what than what we're actually uh, statistically saying every year, which would make the death rate actually bigger of the flu than than it currently is. At least in comparison, it, it, it was it definitely interesting to hear how they do that versus how they're doing this. And um, it was a good point. Yeah, I mean, they, they really have no idea the actual number of people that end up with the flu every year. They just, they don't test that many people to know. It, it's virtually impossible, right? So, yeah, it, it, it's symptom-based, and people are assuming you have the flu. And so they've done that for so many years now that they basically, I don't know, they're they're taking educated guesses based on... Um, the types of virus that they think are going to show up and then they use kind of like that some sort of guesswork in the background to kind of formulate the vaccine for the flu season and but yeah if they get a larger number of cases than they normally see in a regular flu year they may raise their guesstimated amount right if they get a lower number they may lower the guesstimated amount but they don't actually know the number of people so uh, yeah, and, and you know what's uh, other thing that's interesting is that uh, about one and a half million people die of tuberculosis every year. So tuberculosis is an airborne illness that you can get just by being close to someone with the disease. And you know, for example, if you come into the ER and there's a suspicion for TB, they immediately place you into an isolation room. Okay, so. You know, how come we aren't having a government shutdown every year for these 1.5 million deaths from TB, right? It, it, it's certainly a killer, and it's an airborne disease. So, again, the, the, yeah. it seems like a government overreaction to something that didn't need to happen. Yes, I think we could have done things a little bit differently, and I can get into some of those, you know, ideas later, but... Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I'd like to get into those ideas. I mean, some well, that's something that I've always been kind of thinking. And like I said, I'm not, I don't have a very educated opinion on any of this at all. But um, there, there is reaction from some people who say, well, if we bring the economy back, you know, it, it, Trump only would care about the economy. He doesn't care about lives that are being lost. Like we have to do this because lives are being lost. But uh, you know, at some point, unfortunately, there's a trade-off. And you can't just save every single life in, you know, in spite of, of the country coming back together as far as businesses. Um, you know, you can't just save every single one of these corona lives. I mean, we have, like you said, uh, t other diseases that kill people every year. Could we save all those lives? Yeah, sure, we could. The same way we're doing now. You could shut down the economy, make every, you know, you could save all the flu lives that are lost, which is like, 
even though it's we were just talking about it being approximation of uh, people who have it, but it's still like what thirty thousand a year or something die from the flu. I mean, yeah, lives are lost unfortunately for some of these stuff, and eventually we have to go back to work and we have to function as a country. And uh, hopefully, it's a lot less lives than that would have been. But we we can't just eliminate the the virus before we go back to work. At some point, we have to bring things back online and kind of find a new way, which I don't know, in my opinion, you, you hope you'll get into some of what you're thinking. It'll be a lot better than mine probably. But my kind of thought is if there are people who are more susceptible to, to actually, you know, dying from this, maybe old people, people with, uh, or people whose immune systems are compromised, you know, they, you know, we have to allow them to quarantine. I think private businesses and whatever should allow any of their employees that, that have those problems to stay at home. The rest of us come to work and we have to, you know, I would think that we should stay away from your, your grandparents, your old parents. And then unfortunately they have to quarantine until we have a better solution medically to this stuff. But uh, the young people like myself and, and you, um, you know, we need to get back and start the country running normally again. That would be my, you know, my thought. I don't know. I could be totally wrong and maybe I'm naive to this whole thing. No, I, I think it could have been handled differently and in certain populations, uh, I think could have self-quarantined and kind of taking some of their risk out of, I guess, the mix. Um, yeah, like you're saying, if maybe you're uh, elderly or you have some underlying medical conditions like uh, diabetes, bad heart disease, or if you've got a prior smoking history and you have you know COPD, there are a lot of a lot of different conditions that could have just made having even the general flu it made you worse off and more likely to die. And that same population, yes, you're going to want to shield yourself from this new virus, right? So if you were going to shield yourself, try to shield yourself somewhat from the flu then yes, you're going to want to try to shield yourself from the coronavirus, right? Especially because we don't have a vaccine for it yet. So maybe some people would argue that, oh, there's a vaccine for the flu. But what they're also not telling you is that the, the vaccine is usually not very effective. And sometimes you get the vaccine and you actually get the flu. And they don't tell you that a certain number of people are going to have a bad reaction to the vaccine. And some people die from getting the vaccine. Um and that even getting the vaccine, it might only give you, I don't know, a 20, 30 percent chance of not actually getting the real flu. Or um, some of these professionals observe like, well, even if you do get the flu after you get the vaccine, it's you get a more a milder case. Well, that's the hope. That's the hope. But there, there's nothing 100 percent about that, because when it comes down to the individual, you never know how your body's going to react. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, so I guess before I get into some of the other things I wanted to talk about and different ways we could have handled it, uh, I kind of want to jump into some of the the politics behind it and some of the conspiracies I've seen floated around. Some of these, I guess, are more likely than others, right? Could some politicians be in favor of a shutdown in order to send the economy into a crash, thereby hurting Trump and hope to affect the 2020 election? I mean, I, I, cert- I certainly think that's a possibility. And, and what happens when, you know, some states start ending their shutdowns at like the flat portion of this viral bell curve and other states refuse to end the shutdown uh, until like they're significantly on the downswing of the bell curve. I mean, nobody knows when the right time is to end the shutdown at this point, right? So you could see, you know, some states... 
like New York or California who tend to hate Trump, right? You can see those states, it's not hard to comprehend that they're going to hold out longer to try to continue the economic shutdown even longer. Uh, and they'll just say that they're uh, doing it for public safety, right? Instead, instead, you know, their real motive will be they want to hurt Trump. And obviously, they'll never say that. I mean, but those those are interesting theories I've, I've heard thrown around. And, you know, to be honest, I wouldn't put it past them. Okay, it's I mean, politicians have lied about worse things in the past, right? They, they lie us into wars. And so if they're going to lie about getting us into a war and killing thousands of people, why wouldn't they lie about shutting down the economy for a few extra months? I think since there are, are there the cause of the shutdown involves, you know, a very bad virus that lives are being lost. Nobody is going to appreciate that theory. Um but I do think that there are Democrats who are, are happy about the economy taking the crash because of uh, it, in their mind it leads to Donald Trump possibly not getting reelected. And look, this is from firsthand. It's anecdotal, but it, it's stuff I've heard firsthand. I mean, and not only me, you can publicly you could see it on on you know Bill Maher. You could search him somewhere on YouTube. I mean, he said it himself that he would be in favor of an economic crash. 2008 style, because that would, um, in his mind, ensure Trump is is voted out. I mean, so he said that on his own show, and I've heard other people, you know, think, oh, the the one silver lining about this, yay, is uh, Donald Trump is is um is not going to be the next president. And they're all, I think they're all wrong personally, but. Uh, and then I guess some of the other things that I don't know if everybody has taken into account with the with the government shutdown and and like just kind of. Uh, bringing the economy to basic standstill in many industries is uh, they're not taking into account the people that are are suffering because of the shutdown, right? They're not taking into account maybe some cancer patients who are having trouble getting their treatments, uh, people that are walking around with chronic pain who are having you know their surgeries delayed, uh, people with mental illness who are now, you know, shut in their home. Uh, they're not taking that into account, and that there's probably going to be a spike in suicides. I mean, there's a lot of bad things that can happen by forcing you to just, like, stay away from other people. I mean, that's like one of the ways some people can heal that have a mental illness is by being around other people. It's not good for them to be holed up in their house 24-7, not having other people to talk to and socialize with. I mean, there's a lot of bad that can come that you don't really see in the news media. They don't like to talk about it. They just like to say that the shutdown was is the right thing to do, and we got to keep it going to flatten the curve, right? Right. Well, even the people who are now unemployed. I mean, there's ten thousand or ten million new um, jobless claims out there, and like so, the first wave was we're seeing people getting you know hours reduced, and then it was let go. And it could be let go forever in some cases. And now we're at this week, we're seeing some where businesses are actually, they're done. I mean, like a guy who started business and he no longer can do it anymore. Like there's a, a pretty cool pizza restaurant near me. I don't know if they have it near you. It's called Mellow Mushroom. Well, they closed now. And I don't think they're going to reopen after this. That one went down. So now like that's the next wave of what's going to happen during the shutdown is actual loss of business. Not in the, you know, not with them not having the ability to restart up after this. Yeah, and, and they're also not taking into account the 
you know, what that does mentally for someone to be unemployed. I mean, for someone that had a business like those, let's say the people who own that, that pizza place, yeah, that, that's, that's a big kick. That's a big uh, hit to take going from having a thriving business to being completely shut down and out of business, right? How do, how do, you, uh, how do you sleep at night? Where, you know, where do you think you know, if you're trying to support your family, uh, put food on the table and save for retirement, that kind of stuff? I mean, you, you, that's all out the window now. That's got to be very, very stressful for so many people that are uh, not able to work now because of this big shutdown. One of the other things I do want to talk about is this whole idea of the police state. And I don't know if you've seen some of this stuff in the news, but yet the mayor of L.A. on the news, he's encouraging neighbors to snitch on each other. And then additionally, I saw the mayor of L.A. and of New Orleans, they said in like a press conference that they're using cell phone data to track where you are. And they say that they know a lot of people are staying home because of their, their cellular data. I mean, that kind of sounds like an illegal search to me. I mean, do they have a warrant to do this? Do they just assume that they have this power during this type of, you know, pandemic? I, I, don't, I don't know if there's anything in the state constitutions that, that gives them the power to do that or in their, you know, whatever the laws they have on the books. That probably doesn't exist where you, you suspend due process completely right? Or you just throw out the idea of getting a warrant. It's, it's To me, it's absolutely insane because we're doing this off of numbers that are, are based on models you don't know are accurate. I mean, to, to do stuff like that, the government overreach and, and to act like you have like some sort of crazy authority now to do things that are unconstitutional, it's, you'd have to prove to me with, with real numbers that this is a, a, like real drastic not just media-driven like hype, you know, with with numbers that you're not sure of. I mean, to do the stuff that we're doing, honestly, we should be totally sure of what these numbers are and what they're going to be and what they would look like. Not just like maybes with with various models showing different things. I mean, that that's what I think is crazy. And and I I get you know some of that kind of stuff if the numbers were factual about what would have happened. Then I could see like, oh, you know, getting involved in ways that me and you don't like government wise, you know, it's just a must to save lives. But but doing what they're talking about doing, even like, you know, uh, I think arresting a pastor who who kept his church open, you know, stuff like that with with these numbers that are, aren't totally, you know, accurate, the models that we don't really know. It's just too much of an unknown to, to do this type of stuff. So I think it's a, definitely a scary precedent. Hopefully it's a one off and never happens again. For, for our country, but that's a little crazy when you start to think about it. Yeah, I got, there's some other examples too about people being arrested for being outside. Just think about it this way. What's the likelihood of you catching or transmitting the virus just by walking around outside on a hiking trail, right? I mean, it's, it's like negligible. It's almost zero, right? Pretty much zero. So there was a, a dad in New York who got arrested for taking his daughter to a park to play some baseball. And they were like the only two people in the park, okay? And then you got some guy in L.A. that got arrested for paddleboarding on the beach, like out, down on the beach, out in the ocean, right? There's nobody else around, and he's, he's paddleboarding. And so he got arrested, right? So I mean, so you could say that like the point of the crackdown is to send a message, right? The police and the governments are saying, if you defy us, we're going to go after you. So 
yeah, I'm, I'm kind of more afraid of the government response to the virus than anything else. I'm afraid of these police state actions. And again, like you said, like what sort of precedent they may be setting for future government overreach or martial law, right? What, what happens the next time we get a viral outbreak? What happens during the regular flu season now? Does government again overreact and panic and shut down businesses all over again? Right. I mean, and in part of my issue there is that what's going on here emotionally is definitely largely driven by the media and, and, and the hype. I mean, I know it's serious, but so was swine flu, you know, and it didn't get the kind of coverage this guy, it didn't even get a small fraction, you know, um, of the coverage that this guy is getting. And then here's another uh, funny example. How do we know that under like a different administration, we won't get some sort of government shutdown of businesses or, you know, particularly certain types of businesses such as oil and gas, like the whole oil and gas industry to prevent the existential threat of climate change, right? I mean, after all, if climate change is going to kill everybody on the planet in 12 years, well, I mean, sounds like they now have justification to shut it all down because they're they're saving the planet. Yeah, that's the you've just uh, opened up the logic loophole for for the Democrats. We should actually be in a shutdown and no planes, no cars or anything because climate change is going to kill us in 10 years. I mean, so yeah, these are like just scary examples that most people don't think about when you have these government mandated rules on shutting everything down. They only think about the immediate effect of trying to contain the spread of the disease. And a lot of them are just incapable of seeing these bad long-term precedents. And they're, they're incapable of thinking outside the box and how things could be done differently. Just going to the supermarket every day or every other day to buy food, I mean, how is that any different than like going to the dry cleaner, right? So you could, you, let's say you could drop off a bunch of clothes at a dry cleaner and you wear gloves, the dry cleaner guy is wearing gloves, you hand over your shirts and he puts them in whatever the wash and then they steam clean, you know, steam iron them and all that. You get your shirts back a couple of days later and again, they're wearing gloves, you're wearing gloves, you use Apple Pay so you don't have to touch anything. So, right, it, it's, it seems like a pretty safe transaction. I mean, what about the guy at the supermarket who's handling all the fruit and vegetables with and just and stocking all, all the shelves and you're going there every day or every other day to buy food. I mean, aren't you even more at risk just going to the supermarket than you would be at a dry cleaner, but then they have to shut all the dry cleaners down? I guess they're considering that one not essential, right? And the whole going, getting your food's essential. That's their little difference there. And then like outside dining, I, I think restaurants, even indoor dining, I, I can understand if you want to get rid of indoor dining, but maybe... It, have indoor dining, but space the tables out like every eight feet or something, or have outdoor dining only, right? But mm -hmm. in, in my area, they shut down all outdoor dining. So it's only takeout. And I mean, if you're outside and the wind is blowing, I mean, what's the likelihood that you're actually going to transmit the disease from one person to another? I mean, it's, it's crazy. I, th I think we, we local governments and even down to like the municipal level could have come up with ways that they wanted to either shut things down or not, or mitigate in a certain way the, the spread of the disease without shutting everything down. They probably could have done a much better job than having 
you know, the governor of the of the state say that everybody's got to follow this, you know, set of horrible draconian rules. And if you don't, we're going to arrest you. I, I, I agree. Uh, the thing is, I think I might be one of the only ones and everyone listening is uh, probably in disagreement with this. Well, I, there, there's, um, I think, a video I saw of an intensive care unit doctor in uh, uh, New York City who talked about uh, being outside is fine. Uh, he didn't think you needed to wear a mask outside. He only thought you needed to wear a mask. And this is based on his personal experience with the coronavirus for like, a, you know, dealing with patients uh, on a ventilator for like, I don't know how long he said. It was probably like a month's worth of experience or so. And so he's trying to give people a, a don't panic uh, type reaction of his thoughts of what was going on. And he's like, yeah, if you leave the house, you know, have hand sanitizer with you. Anything you touch, well, then just put a little alcohol in your hands and, and lube yourself up a little bit, right? Because in his opinion, uh, having minor contact uh, in, with patients that have the coronavirus in rooms, you weren't gonna you weren't gonna contact the virus uh, through respiratory droplets. You would have had to be in the room for a significant period of time, uh, breathing the same air in order to uh, contract the virus. And so his experience there, they are gowning up and doing taking all precautions because he's dealing with patients that are uh, really sick, probably have a high viral load, and they're in the ICU and it's um, he's seeing it all day. So he's being uh, exposed to the virus all day long when he's at work, as opposed to someone like you or me, maybe working from home, going to the store, uh, going out on a hiking trail or something like that, getting some exercise, getting some sun, which is good for the immune system. I mean, that kind of thing, it's like, it's a night and day different scenario, right? You have someone that is in the mix of it, dealing with very sick patients who have the disease, who are potentially uh, coughing it and spreading it throughout the room. Uh, so there's a high concentration of it potentially in the air as opposed to you just going about your daily activities where, yeah, it, yeah, there could be viral particles around, but you know, in order for uh, you to actually contract it, you can't have one little tiny viral pathogen get in and all of a sudden you're sick, right? I mean, you probably have, need some sort of a threshold level of exposure to enough viral pathogens for you to actually contract it. So yeah, just based on that, the video that that intensivist put out, I, it made me feel a little bit more at ease based on what my personal doctor feels uh, about it, he's not all that worried. That puts me at ease based on the infectious disease doctor in my medical group. He has a certain level of concern, but he's not in panic mode. And he knows that they're taking precautions locally to deal with uh, a surge of patients that doesn't look like is ever going to come. He's not worried about it uh, to any great extent. So there's a lot of evidence out there that you don't need to panic about this, but that's not at all what we're seeing in the media at all. Right. I mean, if you took out the New York numbers, would it even be considered something that is spreading a lot across the country? I mean, that would almost cut the numbers down in half. Not exactly half for the United States, but it would be pretty close, right? So I think there's like 11,000 deaths or something, and there's over 5,000 deaths in New York alone. So yeah, the, those, the numbers would, I guess, kind of look 
minuscule without New York into account. So maybe maybe someplace like New York City and the, the burbs of New York, they would need to, you know, take more precautions than someplace out in... They would need to be doing what the entire country is doing instead of an entire country doing it just a place like New York. Exactly, right. I mean, if you're a, a rural farmer in Iowa or something, I mean, you probably don't have to do anything differently, right? You know, maybe you don't go to a bar and drink half the night, okay? So you don't go out. You drink at home. Big deal. But other than that, I mean, likelihood of someone being out in a field with the crops or with, with farm animals and picking up the disease is, is minuscule. Anyway, I, I think I want to say just towards the end here that, you know, people are making some huge assumption, assumptions and that the government knows best and that the government can deal with the problem effectively However, you know, again, this is the same government who kind of lied to you about the last six wars, lied to you about three years about Russia collusion and Donald Trump. They lied to you initially about the virus not, not being that big of a deal, and now they tell you it is a big deal, and then they told you uh, that you didn't need to wear masks, and now they're telling you you do need to wear masks, and they're going back and forth on different treatments that are out there. I mean, so... Why should you just believe everything the government tells you without verifying it, right? That, that's the part I want to get across to our listeners is that, you know, you, you have a brain. Use your brain. Think for yourself, okay? I think, remember, Ronald Reagan said, trust but verify. I, I don't say that. I say, I say verify and verify because I, I really don't trust the government. But, yeah, at least do the very least of trust and then verify, okay? And if it doesn't match up, Right? If there's no verification based on your initial trust of what the government's telling you, well then, maybe you need to change your mind about it. And for all my wonderful listeners, you'll be happy to know I saved the commercials to the end of the podcast for this episode. Well, I have a few commercials for you guys. I'm an affiliate marketer for several different companies, which I do recommend if you're interested in such products. And you have my word that I'm only going to promote stuff that I actually use and that I actually think is a great value. So I want to tell you a little bit about Captivate FM. I use Captivate FM as my podcast hosting platform, and it's probably the best podcast hosting platform there is. Captivate is said to be the apple of podcast hosting, and the value is certainly undeniable. And you can get seven free days just for trying it out. I host my podcast through Captivate, which is the world's only growth-oriented podcast host, and you can too. Next up is the McClanahan Academy. So this is at mclanahanacademy.com, and that's M-C-C-L-A-N-A-H-A-N. And a little bit about Brian McClanahan, who created this academy. He's an author of six books and a renowned historian. He got his Ph.D. in history at the University of South Carolina. He has written numerous articles for many websites and magazines. He has nine courses for sale right now on his website covering pre- and post-Civil War American history. And he's a fantastic historian and will give it to you straight. And the next product I want you to check out is called Liberty Classroom. And you can go to libertyclassroom.com to take a look. And you can get the history and economics they didn't teach you in school. Several fantastic historians and economists have courses on this site, which you can play over the internet or through a phone app on such topics as philosophy, American history, Western civilization, the American presidents, and the interesting connection between science fiction and liberty. 
You can also get courses on history of economic thought, current economic thought, and remember, this is the true history you didn't get in school without the political correctness that we all love to hate. And please remember, if you're going to try out any of these products, I only get credit if you click on one of them through either my website or through the show notes on my podcast. Okay, everybody. Well, thank you for listening, and let's keep those fires of liberty burning bright. 